RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. It's Shabam, sponsored in part by Google. Tonight at 10, we begin with a... Wait, sorry. Before we start, we should mention that if you haven't heard any of the episodes before this, you should probably go back and start from the beginning, because a lot of what you're about to hear won't make any sense at all, because it's kind of a sequential thing, and anyway... Tonight at 10, we begin with a flight bound for San Diego. Forced to make an emergency landing. At Los Angeles International Airport. News Channel 5 reporter was at the airport when the plane landed and she joined us. On the last episode, we created a zombie pathogen called... Zomboni. The Zomboni virus? Like the machines that polish the ice skating rinks? <laughs> Horrible. No. We named it the Knox virus. We designed it to work extremely fast. And it's highly contagious because it's in all of the bodily fluids, like blood and saliva. Well, in this episode, we're going to track the Nox virus to see how it spreads. And we're going to meet the people who try to stop pesky little infections from becoming big bad epidemics. An epidemic is when a whole bunch of people in the same place at the same time get sick from the same thing. So where is our cutie woody little zombie virus now? Every epidemic starts with a pathogen, like the ones we discussed last episode. Someone gets sick, and then the disease starts to spread. There is a special name for the first person identified with a new disease. Hey guys, Kevin here. Patient zero. It's day three. Or in the case of the Knox virus, Kevin Sharp. Haven't seen any bears yet. Uh, got caught in the rain last night. Kevin Sharp is a 25-year-old wilderness enthusiast wow. from San Diego, California. I'll be posting all this uh, video. While on vacation in northern Canada, Whoa, some of these places he went for a hike all by himself. Wait, whoa, what's this up here? And discovered the opening to a cave that he really shouldn't have gone into. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. Of course. Kevin started exploring. This is why you always have a headlamp. Going deeper and deeper into the cave. Cool for a geocache. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I almost went down about 10 feet right there. And while climbing on a wall of flowstone. Let me see if I can get a better picture. To get a picture of a particularly large stalactite, Kevin <laughs> slipped and fell into a small passage. Which was filled with. Oh, oh my God. Myotis lucificus. The little brown bat. Some of those little brown bats were infected with a virus, and one of them Ow! bit him. As soon as the virus entered Kevin's bloodstream, it did what viruses do, started turning his cells into duplication factories. Of course, that was exciting. Kevin didn't know all this. Got bit by a bat inside, so I'm gonna try to patch that up. So after treating his bite with some antibacterial ointment, I'm gonna head back to camp and then he headed back to his campsite. Tomorrow, back to civilization. It wasn't until the next day when he boarded the plane back to San Diego that his first symptoms started popping up. This is Kevin Sharp signing off. And uh, Wait, 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 wait. We decided in the last episode that if you're bitten, you've got about two to three hours before the virus takes over your brain and turns you into a zombie. So if I'm Kevin, how come I'm not feeling sick right away? Your cells are cranking out viruses with copies of virus DNA in them. Every now and then, a mistake happens. And that DNA doesn't get copied exactly like the original. I'm different. And this is called a mutation. Slightly. And this is what happened to our Nox virus. Before it mutated, it was not a very good human cell hijacker. I was expecting little brown bat cells, not these. So things were a little slow. Okay, so that's why Kevin only felt a little tired 10 hours after being infected. Most of the time, mutations aren't helpful to the virus. But sometimes, just the right mutation in the right host can be a total game changer for a virus. Like a YouTube cat video. What? Uh, what? Well, there's tons of people making videos of cats doing things, and most of them suck, and they have less than a thousand views. But when just the right combination of cat 
and doing something comes along, it goes, well, viral. And that's what happened in Kevin's body. A new mutation of the Knox virus was born that was more viral than the original. And that must have happened sometime on the flight. Okay, so I'm not sure what's happening, but there's something going on on this flight. So now we've got our Knox virus. Just had an announcement, we've got an emergency landing. And that's how it gets to LA. Fox 5 is on top of breaking news. The sick passenger reportedly bit another passenger. And where are they going to take him after the plane lands? At least one passenger has been transported to the hospital. The emergency room. Great. All right, let's take a little break. When we come back, we'll look at what happens when a new illness shows up in the emergency department. An epidemic might start anywhere, anywhere. The classic example Diarrhea. is the 1918 influenza pandemic. Rocky Mountain spotted fever. State officials are warning some residents not to use their water. We are diocese. The water is not safe. Antivirus caused by a parasite. Salmonella. Listeria. Infections of rare. the enterovirus with the norovirus. Rare. It's being called rare form of the plague. Flesh-eating bacteria. The bourbon virus. Plague. Rare disease transmitted by a tick. Animals may spread the disease. Rose, mainly prairie dogs and mosquitoes. Low cats. Toxoplasmosis. Mosquitoes. Cats. Combining and mutating at the same time. Officials determined they had all been served ice cream. Gallons of ice cream. Ice cream. It comes from eating undercooked meat or contaminated cantaloupe. The outbreak was from packaged salad. Ice cream killer cantaloupe. Salad. Ice cream killer cantaloupe. Clean water. Clean air, clean food. This is a birthright of every person around the world. So, Mel, what's the first thing that you do when someone comes into the ER? Um, you go get a coffee, uh, you chat with the nurses. Come on. So you might check your email a couple of times. No, you don't. And then when you get around to it, uh, you go see the patient, maybe. No, seriously. Seriously. Okay, so when somebody comes in the ER, we have to find out what's wrong with them. The difference is that in the ER, you usually don't have a lot of information. So you have to figure out what's going on by running tests and asking the right questions. Being an ER doc is like being a really fast detective. You've got to know the right questions to ask to solve the problem, and you have to take care of a whole bunch of people as efficiently as possible. So if you get sick and need help right away, you go to urgent care or the emergency room. And then doctors like Mel figure out what you have and treat you. That's why the first stop for the Knox virus is the emergency room. What are the scariest cases that you get? Well, a lot of people would think that the scariest cases would be a big car accident with somebody whose arms are broken and blood everywhere. But that's not the scariest case for the ER docs and nurses because we know what to do in those cases. There's a set way of looking after them. The scariest patients are those that come in with something that could be really minor. Look, they look like they've got a cold, but the beginnings of meningitis or some other really serious infection might look exactly the same. So the scariest cases are those cases where it could be something serious but it doesn't look like anything serious right now. Well, what about what about if someone is infected with a new virus that no one's ever heard of, is highly infectious, and turns people into zombies? Well, that's actually never happened. But I suppose that could be scary. In the ER, if a patient comes in with a disease, doctors are looking for known pathogens. But we take for granted that these pathogens are actually known. Someone had to name them and figure out how they work. When a new pathogen shows up, it's up to another group of public health specialists to get involved. The next story is about just that, a real-life mystery disease. 
What were you doing July 1976 um, in Philadelphia? Philadelphia. I wasn't in Philadelphia. I was in Australia, and I was 12. Best of luck. Don't get dumped and watch out for the sharks, eh? Let's go back to 1976 when Mel was 12 in Australia, but to Philadelphia. It's a hot July day, and the U.S. is celebrating its 200th birthday in the city of brotherly love, the home of the Liberty Bell, Philadelphia. Let's float through downtown to the luxury hotel at the time, the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. Home of Rocky Balboa. Wait, what? Was he actually, he was actually at the... Are you kidding? No, I've never seen Rocky. Really? So he ran up the steps? That was, come on, yeah, son. Come on. Of the Bellevue Stratford Hotel? No. Well, that's what we're talking about. Can I finish the story? I'm going to finish the story. Shh. Good. Okay. Go. Okay, if you're Rocky Balboa, you're not getting into the Bellevue Stratford. I'm very happy about that. The people who stayed at the Bellevue Stratford were like the President of the United States or the Queen of Romania or really rich people who are really interested in letting other people know how really rich they were by hanging out with other really rich people. That's the kind of hotel we're talking about. Now let's, let's float through the lobby and up into the air vents and through the ventilation ducts and up to the roof to the air conditioning units that are running full blast because it's hot. July 4th, let's stop at the cooling trays where the water is used to cool the hot air from the hotel. Let's feel the air that blows past this tray of stagnant warm water. This is the perfect place for a party if you're a bacteria. Isn't this great? This is awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Both of me. (laughs) And what happens when you blow air over water? It makes ripples? Yes! And if the air is blowing hard enough, the ripples turn into airborne droplets. In 1976, those water droplets from the roof of the Bellevue Stratford Hotel, the most luxurious hotel in all of Philadelphia, had bacteria in them. I'm flying! Now, there was another group having a party at the Bellevue Stratford, and that was the American Legion, a war veterans group. And they were there for a convention. A week after the convention, some of the veterans, called Legionnaires, got sick. And two weeks after that, more got sick. And some even died. Scientists working for the state of Pennsylvania and the federal government are still hard at work this morning trying to determine the cause of the mystery disease that so far has taken at least 22 lives. Naturally, people were freaking out. So I would call your doctor. When you have no idea what the cause is or where to start, that's scary. Is it an airborne bacteria? Is it a virus? Is it food poisoning? Is it chemical poisoning? The scariest thing is not knowing what you're dealing with. Another crazy thing was not everyone in the hotel got sick. Because, as I said, I slept in the same room with two fellows that are dead. One person got sick who never even set foot in the hotel. There was also a garbage strike going on at the time, so some people blamed it on all the piles of smelly garbage lying around. Does this sound familiar? We call it the miasma theory. The bad air is what causes cholera. Patients come to us in the ER, and we do medical detective work there. But when there's an outbreak, like the one in Philadelphia in 1976, you need medical detectives that go out into the world and do what Jon Snow did back in the 1850s. The disease hunters. These people are called epidemiologists. They are part of the public health system, which includes people like this guy. Dr. Ali Khan, Dean of the College of Public Health at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. Dr. Khan not only trains public health practitioners like epidemiologists, he also goes around the world doing disease detective work, figuring out how to stop outbreaks like Ebola in other countries. And as we discussed in the last episode, Ebola is one of those viruses that is so highly contagious that the only way to protect yourself is to put on one of those full body plastic suit things that you see in the movies. What you would not know, it's really hot. 
you can't stay in there very long. You're wearing goggles, you're wearing a hoodie, you're wearing little footies and apron, and then two to three pairs of gloves. You're sweating, and the sweat would be beating down your forehead and going in and around your goggles, and you lose a lot of your dexterity in your hands and fingers, so you need to be extra careful as you interact with patients. But, you know, when you draw blood, to be careful that you don't stick yourself with the blood despite the fact that you have on two or three pairs of gloves. But Ebola is not the only highly contagious deadly virus. Research on some of the world's deadliest diseases happens at a special place called The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, works 24-7 to protect the American people from disease, including those that begin overseas. Here, they not only have those plastic suits, but they also have special rooms designed to keep pathogens in. So if you're a doctor and you think you see a mystery disease, you call the CDC. Back in 1976 in Philadelphia, when those legionnaires got sick, they went to the doctor or to the emergency room. When they started dying, those doctors called the state health department, and the health department called the CDC. It's the CDC's job to do what Jon Snow did in London. And that's exactly what happened. The CDC John snowed the pants off that hotel. They collected tissue samples from healthy and sick legionnaires. They took thousands of samples from the hotel, from the air, from the fibers, from the water, from the food. Have you been to the convention? They tracked down everyone who stayed at the convention. Okay, are you a delegate in the convention? Interviewed them. At the go-getter's breakfast on Friday. Did you have the coffee? Just the coffee, no, no roll. And the hotel stuff. On Friday the 23rd, how often did you ride the main elevator? They determined that the bacteria-filled water droplets from the roof must have floated down the front of the hotel to the entrance and been inhaled by someone breathing in at the wrong time, most of whom were people staying at the convention. When they finally found the bacterium, it was totally new. So they named it Legionella pneumophilia, after the legionnaires who had died. Ever since the legionnaires' disease became a major national story. Now you may be asking, what happened to the Bellevue Stratford, the most luxurious hotel in all of Philadelphia? Well, they closed down. But the famous Legionnaires outbreak in Philadelphia is a great example of how the public health system, from local doctors to the CDC, dealt with an outbreak of an unknown pathogen without the advantage of a bunch of cool technology, like the ability to instantly send medical images across the country from your phone. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll find out how the public health system might deal with the Knox virus today and why it's so great the zombie apocalypse didn't start in the 70s. Happy! It's 1977! And you know what? You just can't snap a photo and share it with your friends. What was the Instagram of the 1970s? The closest things were instant cameras made by companies like Polaroid and this one from Kodak. Introducing the Kodak instant camera with a twist. Meet the crank. Can you feel a brand new day? Imagine instant pictures with color. Color. Color by Kodak. Just crank, 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 and in minutes you get bright, colorful, instant pictures with a textured satin luxe finish. See your photo dealer and shake hands with the crank, a Kodak instant camera with a twist. And then to send it, you have to go down to the post office, you have to write the address of the person you want to send it to, and then you have to go pay, put stamps on it, and then, anyway, let's get back to the present. So what happened to Kevin? our patient zero after he was sent to the hospital. While being treated, he escaped his restraint and bit the nurse and the hospital administrator. 
Unfortunately, doctors and nurses get attacked by crazy patients all the time. I personally have been punched, kicked, multiple times. So patients attacking hospital staff wouldn't lead anyone to suspect a larger problem. Not yet. Even if people don't suspect that this is a problem, the CDC is monitoring even the smallest threats all of the time. Think of the public health system like the country's immune system. Just like the body's immune system has different cellular teams that work together to fight off pathogens and keep the body healthy, the public health system is a network of people teams that work together to keep the country healthy. Urgent care and ER doctors feed information about cases they see to local health departments and the CDC. In the last section, we saw the system in action dealing with an outbreak of Legionnaire's disease before it was named Legionnaire's disease. Kind of like how the immune system deals with a new pathogen. Medical detectives were deployed, the bacterium was discovered, and then it was named. Let's remember that one. The story hit the news, lingered for a few months, and then like a fever, the news story went away. Officials say a sick patient attacked eight nurses. Once the patient made his way outside, even the police had a hard time subduing him. The disturbing incident caught on camera. Our little Knox virus is starting to show up in the world, too. People are posting videos on YouTube, but nobody takes them seriously. At least, not yet. Oh my god, Nadine just sent another What's one. What's the rule about phones at the dinner table? Third patient to attack emergency room nurse in three days. Elliot, can I see? Following yesterday's incident. Elliot! These individual cases in the beginning probably wouldn't be very newsworthy. Unless there was something like really dramatic about the case. Or if there was like a, a video. There's a video. Elliot! Let me see! Boys, your father has asked you nicely to put the phone away. But mom, it's the news. I'm not playing. Put it away or it's gone. Fine! Elliot! This family... It's a dictatorship! Mm -hmm. Don't even think about it. As we mentioned, if this is the start of a real mystery illness, people are bound to end up in the ER. And when they do, doctors and nurses can help their detective work by looking up symptoms on the internet. If the symptoms don't match known pathogens, it's pretty safe to assume that some smart ER doc or nurse will call the health department and say, Yeah, hey, it's Dr. Hicks from County. I've got a few unusual cases here. We've had three cases of trauma patients coming in and waking up. They're severely agitated, aggressive. Another case just came in. No, no, no. They're totally unresponsive to sedatives. And this is how the health departments get an idea of the bigger picture. When somebody's infected with a new disease, there's usually not a tattoo on their head that says, hi, I have a new disease. That's Dr. Ali Khan again, our disease detective. We often get called and you don't know what it is. And so your first job is to say, hmm, is this unusual? Is this a regular disease that just got misdiagnosed? So your first step is sort of answer that question. Is this an epidemic? And you start by identifying what do I think a case of this disease looks like? And then you start looking for other ones. And there are other cases. The person Kevin bit on the plane, Allison Crawley, became ill at the airport and was being treated by the airport medical staff when she started getting aggressive. Security called 911, and when the ambulance arrived, Allison bit the paramedics too. And so I grabbed her like this here and moved her off of him so I get a better view. But that's just not normal human behavior, you know? We, we don't bite. No one has discovered the Knox virus yet, so no one knows how serious it is to be bitten. So already, the virus is quickly and quietly spreading. And here's why it's great to live in the present. There, I just sent you another picture of my rash. Ah, oh, why? Send that to your doctor. Right. Oh, there's a better one. Stop sending me these things. First off, medical research is 40 years better since 1976. 
And with the internet and smartphones, information travels much faster, which means health officials can know things earlier and respond faster to a threat. And that's why it's easy to take the safety net of the public health system for granted. All this fast communication and medical technology actually works pretty well. That's why we don't see massive outbreaks or epidemics very often. It's not like cholera in the 1800s. Like your immune system, the public health system works in the background. There's a whole behind-the-scenes network of disease detectives, scientists, and doctors quietly fighting off epidemics before they happen, which also means we don't feel the protection we're getting. The polio vaccine is a great example. If you remember from last episode, the polio virus attacks your nerve cells and it can leave you paralyzed for life. The chances are you've never seen this boy before, but you've seen many like him. In the 60s, when there was polio all over the place and parents were scared to send their children out in the summer because they may get infected, everybody was so glad for polio vaccination. You could literally see the disease in front of you. Though Johnny himself is a stranger to you, the disease that made him a cripple is no stranger. It was poliomyelitis. Nowadays, we don't see kids in wheelchairs and using canes because they've been crippled by this horrific disease, and that's thanks to vaccinations. So when you don't see the disease, then it's harder to remind people what they're vaccinating against. This I don't see it so I don't feel it thing is just human nature. For example, earthquakes and hurricanes will happen. Oh, water's coming in. We just don't know when. If we could feel the threat of natural disasters before we actually see them, we'd all prepare and get supplies and stuff. Why don't we have any sandbags? But that doesn't happen. You were going to get them last week. And most of us don't prepare for epidemics either. We need to move to California, man. That's what the public health departments are supposed to do. By constantly monitoring diseases, they can act before it becomes something the rest of us can actually see. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we'll see what happens when an epidemic becomes something we can actually see. All right, dude, I'm hitting the beach. Whoa, wait a minute, man. This was the weekend we were going to go on our earthquake supply run. No, that was last weekend. Well, that's even worse, bro. We're a week overdue, man. Dude, the probability of an earthquake is so low. Come on. The probability of missing a perfect wave today is so high. That's the whole point, man. It always feels like there's not going to be an earthquake. All right, whatever. An earthquake would happen any time, man. Like now. Or now. Okay, I'm hitting the beach. You coming? Fine, but we're doing this tomorrow, man. Okay, tomorrow we're going to go to that show, remember? And next weekend. Gone next weekend. Oh, come on. Okay, before the break, our Knox virus was kind of lurking under the radar. There's been at least one call to the CDC, and more people are getting infected and winding up at the hospital. And more videos are getting posted. Mom, Nadine's gonna hang out for a while, okay? Did you see the one with the guy that falls out of the fifth floor window and then attacks the security guard? What? No. Can I see? Nadine, does your dad know you're here? Yes, Mrs. Walker. He has to work till 8. Oh my god. Oh my goodness. So this is really all you guys want to do? Just look at videos on each other's phones? With the Knox virus emerging from the shadows, it's not going to take long for the CDC to realize that this is more than an outbreak. It is the makings of an epidemic. So then once you've established that, yes, you do have some unusual disease going on in the community, you try to figure out, well, what's the nature of this unusual disease? Who's getting sick? Is it men? Is it women? Is it children? Is it people who like to eat salami sandwiches? 
you have to figure out the nature of who's getting sick and why. And what that does is it sort of starts giving you an idea of, hmm, how could this disease potentially be spread? At this point, public health officials would start to do some real serious John Snowing, asking questions, talking to doctors, getting samples, that kind of stuff. But at the same time, the virus is spreading. Oh my God. This one's from Russia. I want to see. Oh my God. Dad, when can I have a phone? You can have Elliot's. He was kidding. When dealing with an epidemic, it's important to find the pathogen really fast. But what might be even more important is stopping the spread. Public health departments have various tools they can use to stop the spread of a disease. The first one is information. You need to tell the public what you know, when you know it. The CDC says it's discovered a new virus. Officials are calling it the Knox virus. Another tool is limiting human contact. In 1918, the whole world was hit with a bunch of flu epidemics all over. Here in the U.S., some local health departments closed schools and banned people from going to movie theaters, all to minimize people interacting too much and spreading the disease. Something similar is happening. We've ordered a curfew. With the Knox virus. Be in effect, instituting tomorrow. Let's not get all worked up about nothing. It's a curfew, Cyril. That's not nothing. They're going to start rounding people up next, and it's not the flu. I never said it was the flu. And stop talking about rounding people up. Curfews are just limits on when people are allowed to be out or where they're allowed to go. And if you keep people away from each other, you're less likely to get infected by somebody else. They did it during the Ebola outbreak. I was in Sierra Leone for five weeks. They put curfews in to keep people from mingling together in the evenings. It's not Ebola either. It's just a curfew so that, you know, so people don't get, it's for people who have become. Just say it. Infected. Zombies. Oh my God. Owen, go back to bed. Oh, sure. You too? Now you're interested in the news. Elliot. Go to sleep, both of you. Another tool public health officials use is quarantine and isolation. Isolation is a place where you put people who are clearly infected. You might set up isolation rooms in a hospital, for example. Quarantine is where you put people who might be infected, but you don't know for sure. So if an infection got out of hand, the health department might set up a quarantine zone and keep people in it. And then the National Guard would be called in to enforce these quarantine areas if people weren't listening to the health department. Because just like in 1918 with the flu, the main goal initially would be to stop the spread of infection. And that might mean quarantines and isolation or curfews and mandatory closures of public facilities. Every cell in your body carries a copy of your DNA. It's instructions for your... Attention teachers and students. We will be dismissing classes early today. Please exit the building after third period. All teachers will meet in the auditorium for a special... Hey, can I hang out at your place until my dad gets off work? Sure, we can grab pizza or something. Uh, I just have to get Owen first. Cool. As we mentioned earlier, the public health system is like the country's immune system. It tries to keep the nation safe by containing diseases. But it's not perfect. Just like having an immune system doesn't guarantee that you won't get sick, some pathogens can be so contagious and so deadly that it's almost impossible to avoid an epidemic. Most outbreaks, they'll follow a predictable pattern. That's Greg Moran, our infectious disease specialist from the last episode. Typically, the conditions that are best for the spread of an epidemic is a lot of people concentrated in a small area, like a hospital, for example, or a city, a densely packed city. So if you want to survive the zombie apocalypse, what you probably want to do is get out of the city and uh, try to wait it out. But oftentimes, things aren't that easy. 
By now, the CDC has worked out that the Nox virus is spread by biting. They have now informed the public. Instituted curfews, set up isolation suites in hospitals. Will this be enough to stop the spread of the Nox virus? We'll find out next time on Japan. And now the associate director for the National Center for Emerging and Zoonotic Infectious Diseases at the CDC, Dr. Brian Mills. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Shabam is produced by C.C. Herbert. I want to first dispel some misinformation about the Knox virus. It is not an airborne disease. Your hosts, Josh Kurz, Mel Herbert, and Wendy Rudeweiss, also created the show. But we believe the virus is highly contagious and could be spread through direct contact with bodily fluids as well. Recording engineer and mixmaster is Bill Connor. Does the CDC have an effective treatment plan in place for its patients? We are working with local health departments and exploring a number of treatment protocols. So that's a no? Our voice actors are Sean Paris, Jess Thigpen, Steve Santucci, Chase Zalowinski, Rose Sengenberger, Pablo Gustafson, Jess Mason, Jason Major, Dave Mason, and Maria Mateus. Right now, we're, we're just asking everyone to stay home and minimize contact with other people. Special thanks to Dr. Ali Khan and Dr. Greg Moran. But neighborhood quarantine areas have not been ruled out. This episode also featured the musical stylings of Matt Eccles, St. Cecilia, and Luke Pochask. Does the CDC intend to set up designated safe zones? Shabam is a production of Fulibu Incorporated. No, unless a majority of the population is infected. This episode of Shabam is sponsored in part by the making and science team of Google. And why is that, CC? Because Google loves science. Hey, Shabammers, here's another quick zombie tip. Wash your hands and avoid getting zombie goop and fluids all over you. Because the zombie juice is filled with pathogens. No hand-to-hand combat? No, no hand-to-hand combat. Don't touch them. This is a good tip. How do I support you guys so I can keep getting more of these good tips? Gold. That's right. Or you can just go to patreon.com slash bam. Where you can get some cool stuff and learn more about the making of the show. Is there other stuff I can do? Because this seems really hard and complicated. Also, you can go to iTunes. Oh, yeah. And do three simple things. I remember this. You do? What are they? Donate. Nope, that's Patreon. We just covered that. Call in. No. Subscribe. Review. And like. That sounds easy. Donate. That's for Patreon. This is iTunes. Call. No, do not call iTunes. Okay, remind me again. Three things. Subscribe, review, like. Bing, bang, boom. Yeah. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And you can get all of that from our website, shabamshow.com. I'm just so glad that all this stuff is at the end of the show, not at the beginning, because, you know, sometimes they just Okay, see you in the next episode. Shabam! Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.